Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled The Path of Skillful Means What is Empowerment? by Lama Kathy Wesley. Tibetan Buddhism is often called Vajrayana Buddhism because of its connection to the Indian Buddhist practices of yoga, visualization, and mantra. These practices involve body, speech, and mind as a transformative method for cutting through our confusion and realizing our Buddha nature. Lama Kathy will introduce deity yoga and the purpose of the empowerment ritual in Tibetan Buddhism. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Thanks very much for coming today. Uh, my name is Kathleen Wesley. I work here. Uh, I'm part of the teaching staff at Columbus KTC, and it's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Uh, this morning, um, I thought I would say a few words about the program that's going to be happening here in late August. Uh, we're going to have a Tibetan teacher visit us for the first time. He will never have been here before. And because he is a first-time visitor, uh, and he is from Tibet, I thought it would be a good thing to do today. So because he is unfamiliar with us and we are unfamiliar with him, I thought it might be useful to say a few things about what llamas are and the difference between the varying kinds of teachers you will encounter in a Tibetan Buddhist setting. I thought it would be interesting because a lot of folks ask, they say, you know, what's the difference between a monk and a nun and a llama and a, a Rinpoche? What, what's all the differences? What are the differences? And so, um, and so I thought I would talk a little bit about that today and we could have some discussion and I'll be able to say a few words today uh, about this, uh, the program that's coming up because I'm really pretty excited that we have this visiting Lama coming. So it's pretty exciting for me. So uh, we'll begin the way we usually begin with um, our prayer of intention and it starts with um, the refuge. We'll recite this refuge prayer um, three times in total, uh, two in English, and then I'll chant it in Tibetan if anybody would like to join in. So we dedicate, uh, we recite these prayers as a means of stating our intention for being here. Because, you know, on a beautiful day like this, we could be anywhere in central Ohio. We could be out on a picnic. We could be out at the skateboard park. We could be anywhere, right? But we're here, and we're spending some time together. And we can dedicate 
the time that we have together to the benefit of not just ourselves, but of all beings. So we'll, we'll have that thought in mind. Um, I'll, again, we'll start with the English. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. For the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And now I'll recite it in Tibetan, and if you uh, know it, you can join in, and if not, you can listen and enjoy. Okay, thank you. Oh, Paul Densawe Lama Rimboche Tagichi or Pede Tinchula Kadrin Jembo Gonejay Sunte Kusum Tugging Udrup Saldusol. Okay, thanks very much. Oh, yes, thank you. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Okay, so uh, today's, today's topic then is, uh, the, the title is Lamas, Lineage, and Empowerment, because these are uh, things you will hear about as you learn about Tibetan Buddhism. One of my teachers said that Tibetan Buddhism is sometimes called Vajrayana Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism. And this describes several things. It describes how the teachings came about, how they are transmitted, and how they are practiced. The word Vajra means indestructible, and it's sort of like um, the indestructibility of the diamond. The word diamond is sometimes used in place of the word Vajra. So indestructible or diamond. And yana means vehicle or path. So the indestructible vehicle or the diamond vehicle or path. But why is it called indestructible? Why is it, called, why is it described as being a diamond? And well, the reason that this is, according to my teacher, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, the founder of this center, it's called indestructible because it, the goal and the method are similar in that they both have to do with our inner indestructible nature. Our inner indestructible nature. And sometimes that inner indestructible nature is called Buddha nature because that is the part of our mind that we meditate with 
and on. And by meditating with our minds and letting our minds come to know themselves and to know the, their indestructible nature completely through knowing this completely, uh, it, we become uh, free or liberated. We become liberated from uh, confusion and delusion and suffering. And uh, because if you remember the teachings on the Buddha's four truths, four truths known by the noble, the four noble truths, suffering's part of life, suffering has a cause, suffering has a solution, and there's a path that leads to the end of suffering. And if you remember the teaching on the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering, the Buddha said the cause of our suffering is not external, it's not the boss, it's not the neighbor, it's not the family. The cause of our suffering is how we cling to and react to the things that happen to us, the grasping and clinging. We grasp and cling to our ideas and our people and our things, and by grasping and clinging, we cause ourselves a lot of suffering. As uh, I like to quote the American Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, she said, if something hurts so much, it's because I'm holding on so tight. So this means that for us to be liberated from the suffering of this world, we have to find a way to open that, open that clinging up to let go. But letting go is not easy and it's not easily taught. We can't, if someone is suffering, we can't just say to that suffering person, oh, just let it go, because they're suffering. But what we can do is offer some insight, some strategies for helping, some strategies for working with that suffering. And that's why we have the three yanas, the three vehicles, the three paths for working with that suffering and for resolving that suffering and for learning how to let go. Most of us are already familiar with the first two of the yanas or paths taught in Tibetan Buddhism. My teacher said, instead of just calling Tibetan Buddhism Vajrayana Buddhism, we should probably call it three yana Buddhism because you practice all three. All three are combined. Our Hinayana, H-I-N-A-Y-A-N-A, -A -A, Hinayana, which means the individual vehicle is for our individual liberation from our individual suffering. And the practice of quiet sitting meditation where we learn how to sit and meditate. Sitting and meditating helps us to get, our know, get to know our mind a little bit and get to see our patterns. Like, oh, when somebody says this, I always react this way and I hate that, right? I don't know about you, but I have some of those. If somebody says a certain thing to me, then I, I lose my temper. I don't like that. I don't like losing my temper. It doesn't feel good. But I have a habit of doing that. So how do I see through my habit? You do that by meditating. And then even when you're sitting and meditating very quietly, if you think about something, if you lose your attention to the breath and you start thinking about something that happened yesterday and you start to get angry again all over, like it's happening again. But the discipline of meditation, you're supposed to label that thought thinking, you let it go and then return your attention to the breath for a fresh start and then you start again. 
And what's so interesting is that when you let go of that thought, in many cases, it completely disappears. Not always, but in many cases, it will completely disappear, which tells you something. Which means if you don't grab that thought and don't hold that thought and don't go huh, with that thought, then the thought actually doesn't have any power over your mind. That, that thought loses its power over you. And so for many of us, that's our first lesson in letting go. Our first lesson in letting go is letting go of that thought that happened when we were meditating. We also practice the Mahayana, which is called the greater or the larger vehicle. And it has to do with the liberation of all beings. And the main path, just as the main path for the Hinayana is meditation, mindfulness, ethical behavior, not harming ourselves, not harming others. That's the whole Hinayana path, individually liberating our individual being from our individual version of suffering. We can also think about other beings who are in this mess with us and start to generate compassion and love for them in their own confusion and delusion. One of my teachers said, once you know what your confusion and what your delusion is and what makes you suffer, you can actually get insight into what makes that person over there suffer or that person or that person or that person because you can see how your suffering is very similar to theirs. Maybe there are themes that repeat, like nobody wants to be called a name. Nobody wants to be called a name. Nobody wants to be personally attacked. People don't like that. So the idea is we can begin to see that what makes us suffer also makes others suffer and this prompts us to feel a little bit of compassion for them because they're going through something. My, my favorite uh, bumper sticker is, mean people are suffering. I know that's not what you expected because you've seen the other one. You've seen the other, yeah, okay. And anyway, but, but mean people are suffering. And if the more we can understand and recognize that, the more compassion we will have for them. And so in this way, we can begin to liberate not just ourselves from suffering, but we can begin by practicing compassion and love toward others. We can begin to liberate others from suffering as well. I'm, uh, I'm in the midst of teaching a program for um, the Santa Monica KTC on a book by Mingyur Rinpoche, the young master of meditation, and it's called The Joyful Wisdom. Joyful Wisdom. It's a good book. And this week, our lesson was about this idea that everybody suffers pretty much in the same way, and we can begin to have compassion for other people. And we can be le become less judgmental of other people. Now that doesn't mean that we let people run around and, and harm us because that's not good for their karma, let's face it. So we have to find ways to strategically work with those who we have difficulty with. But if we can generate some compassion through the Mahayana, that's a very powerful thing. But now this Vajrayana that I was speaking of, this indestructible vehicle, it's called indestructible, as I mentioned, because it deals with the indestructible Buddha nature that's within all of us. 
And this is one of the coolest teachings I ever heard from my teacher, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche. It was so cool because he said to us, we were all in a group just about like this size in a room somewhere, and he said, each one of you has the potential to be a Buddha. And he kind of looked around the room and looked, and looked at every person and said, each of you can be a Buddha. Each of you already has within you the seed of Buddhahood called Buddha nature. You have a mind, and that mind can know everything. And by that he didn't mean we can go to school and learn stuff. What he meant is we, our mind experiences everything. Our mind is what we experience the world with. Yeah, the body conveys information. We know when it's hot and cold and all that. But it is our mind that experiences everything that happens to us. And it is that mind that can also experience itself. And, and the mind learning how to know itself and experience itself, that's the work of the Vajrayana. Mingyur Rinpoche in his book says that we'll get glimpses, we may not believe it when somebody tells us we have Buddha nature. Somebody looks at you and says, you have Buddha nature, you have Buddha nature. You may not believe it. You may say, well, those other people over there, they've got it, but I don't. But everyone who has a mind has the potential to awaken to their own nature and their own Buddhahood. So he said, uh, you may not believe it when you first somebody first tells you you have Buddha nature. He said, but you will have received already little... Um, insights. Uh, I like the word in English, even though it doesn't get used much, inkling. Does, has anybody not heard that word inkling? It's a, it's a cool word. It's like, it's like you, have, you get the idea of something. You just get like a little glimpse of something. That's an inkling. And you know something's back there, but you can't see the whole thing. That idea of a glimpse of something that you can't see in its entirety. You get this little, so Minja Rinpoche said, in, in a dark, on a dark street, there might be a house, but you wouldn't know it unless you could see little bits of light coming from inside the house. Because at night, there are lights in the house. And he said, even if somebody has closed their shutters up tight, he said, you could still see a tiny crack of light coming through. And he said, these are the insights, inklings, and glimpses we get into our own Buddha nature. He said, for example, he said, Buddha nature is said to have three qualities. One, it's a boundless wisdom. And the other of it is besides boundless wisdom, there's boundless compassion. Boundless wisdom, boundless compassion. And then boundless capability or boundless ability. It is said that a person who has attained Buddhahood is, is all wise, which is why we use the word omniscience in that, in that dedication prayer we're gonna recite soon. So the idea is that they are boundlessly wise and boundlessly compassionate because they know everything. And they are also boundlessly capable because now they can look at a person and instantly know how to help that person. They can instantly know what to do. I want, I want to be like that when I grow up, I have to tell you. I would like to be like that when I grow up. 
And it's and so this was the this was what Minja Rinpoche said were the three qualities of Buddha nature. And he said, you'll get inklings or glimpses of these. He says, before anybody even tells you you have Buddha nature, he said, number one, you're gonna have hunches, you know, like a hunch about something, or a, that's another fun English word. But the other word is um, um, you'll have uh, intuitions about things. If you have like an intuition about somebody you just met and you're like, mm, that person's not a good person, or mm, that person's really trustworthy. So you'll have intuitions about things. And, um, and so that's your inner wisdom showing through. That's the, the, the boundless wisdom part of your Buddha nature, just peeking through. Then the uh, boundless capability will be those moments when there is perhaps danger or problem and you instantly spring to action. You don't even think about it first. You see that a child's running into the street and you grab the child. Well, you don't even think, you don't even have time to think. You just act. And there is your boundless capability. It's, it's peeking through. And the same with your compassion. There'll be moments when you see something, maybe it's something uh, beautiful, like a beautiful performance of art, like music, or read uh, something in a book, a piece of literature. I mean, how many of us have had the experience of, of reading a book late at night and we get to that sad part and it makes us weep? Or we're listening to music and that sad song plays and it makes us weep. He said that ability to be moved by something, that, that's, that's our glimpse or our inkling of our boundless compassion. So we have these in tiny ways, in tiny ways. And so uh, that is a way of knowing that we have this indestructible nature within us. But how are we gonna uncover it? How is that inner nature gonna be uncovered? And this is the function of teachers. Remember, I was gonna get around the lamas eventually. <laughs> get around to them eventually. Well, the, the word lama, uh, la means uh, insurpassable, like great. And ma is like, yeah, it means mother. And so even men who are teachers are called lama, insurpassable mothers of beings. And I just think that's marvelous, you know, insurpassable mothers of beings. So, um, and so that is what it means to be a Lama, is that you're guiding people. You're helping people to see their Buddha nature. You're helping people to see and experience their own nature. First by telling groups of, of, of random individuals, you know, uh, telling groups of individuals, hey, you have Buddha nature. <laughs> you have Buddha nature and so on, you know? And first it, it, it comes through that kind of thing, right? And, uh, but then they also give you the instructions in the meditation methods to help you uncover it. Quiet sitting meditation helps you understand your patterns, you know, helps you to understand your, your mental and emotional patterns. That's the goodness of quiet sitting meditation. Then there's also something called uh, compassion meditation, 
where you can uh, meditate on sending love and compassion to yourself and sending love and compassion to others and develop your compassionate heart. And they can teach you that too. But they can also teach you how to rest in this basic nature of your mind, which Mingyur Rinpoche compares to a panoramic awareness of all things. This basic panoramic awareness of all things. He said, uh, awareness by itself is the capacity to know things and to experience anything. Your mind has that capacity. That's awareness. And I, I tell, I've told many times the story of how I asked Minja Rinpoche for a teaching on awareness. Like, what's awareness, Rinpoche? The word Rinpoche, by the way, means precious teacher. Because Rinchen is the Tibetan word for jewel. Rinchen, great jewel. And uh, Poche is, the, is like the title. So the, the rare and the precious one, the precious teacher. And it's given to teachers who accomplish qualities from their meditation practice. When you see a person who has attained qualities of peacefulness and you know, non-reactiveness and non-judgmentalness and kindness and so forth, when you see somebody who has those kinds of qualities, sometimes their superiors recognize that by giving them the teaching title Rinpoche. So one of, uh, one of my teachers, uh, said that, um, uh, this was Minja Rinpoche, when I asked him, I said, Rinpoche, teach me about, what is this awareness you're asking us to meditate, to use in our meditation? Because he says, rest your mind in open awareness. And I, I said, what does that mean? And he says, oh, awareness. He said, that's easy. He, he, taught, he still teaches in English, and he's, uh, he taught at that time in English. And, uh, and so I asked him uh, what, you know, what, awareness was and he said oh he said that's easy he said uh, are, do you see my hand and he waved it in front of my face not not quickly just slowly and I said uh-huh I see that uh-huh he said now do you hear the snapping of my fingers and I said uh-huh he said that's it he said you are aware of what you see and you're aware of what you hear, but you can also be aware of that awareness. Now, only for a few seconds, because usually then, after we're aware of our awareness for about two seconds, it's like we're off to the races again, because we thought of something else. You know, is the stove on at home? Or, you know, or I should have fed the cat. You know, whatever. But in those moments when we're not being consumed with stories and thoughts and emotions, in those moments when we're not consumed by those things, we can actually just stop and be aware of awareness. And this, he said, gives us more of an idea of this inner goodness and inner peace that we can access when the time is right. So that's what lamas do. Lamas teach us these methods. They teach us quiet sitting. They teach us compassion meditation. They teach us the methods of looking at mind, which is called the path of liberation. They can uh, teach us the, um, the path of skillful means, which includes the practice of mantra and visualization, where we can, for many people, they can't believe they have Buddha nature, 
but they, it's, and it's very easy, but it's very easy for them to imagine that they're a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. Like imagine that instead of the body they have now, they, they are made of light and that they are actually a Bodhisattva of, of great wisdom and great compassion. You get, to, you get to meditate on this for a few minutes at a time in each of the mantra sessions where you just rest in the idea that your basic nature now is taking the form of a Buddha. Um, and a lot of my friends in psychotherapy use the term acting as if. Acting as if you have already made the change or already become the change you want to be. And, uh, and so this is a rather fancy way of acting as if by imagining that you have your Buddha nature is fully um, developed. So this is what lamas do. They give us these instructions that help us to discover these things. And in the Tibetan system, each of the four lineages of Tibetan Buddhism have handed down specific methods for these meditations. Buddhism did not come to Tibet all at once. If you read Tibetan history, it came twice. Very early in the 700s of the uh, AD or common era period, in, in the 700s, one of the emperors of Tibet invited a great monastic abbot to create a monastery. And when he had trouble, they invited uh, him to send, uh, a, a, what is it? A trouble resolution specialist from Pakistan. In other words, he knew how to talk to the shamans who were very resistant, the, um, the native religion of Tibet, the shamanistic religion of Tibet. They needed an interface with a real person who could talk to them. And so the emperor sent for Guru Rinpoche uh, from Pakistan, and he came and he, he made deals with all the local gods and all the local spirits and all the local shamans, and everything was really pretty good after that. So Buddhism was allowed to be spread in Tibet at that time. But after that emperor died and other emperors came to power, um, a particular emperor uh, decided that he didn't like Buddhism and he wanted to return to the shamanistic past. And so he started um, doing bad things to monks and nuns and uh, harming monasteries and things like this. And so... Um, there was a kind of a, a difficult period in Tibetan history. But after the death of that emperor, um, Buddhism flourished a second time. And, they were, and this time they wanted to make sure it stuck. So they, uh, so they invited dozens and dozens of great masters to come from India to, to give specific styles of teaching. And so I, I want to make a joke. If you've ever seen a map of Tibet, you'll know that it's mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys. And every valley had its own monastery and every, every mo monastery had its own group of monks and nuns and that kind of thing. And so many, many different lineages of these Indian Buddhist practices made it to Tibet. Many, many different lineages of these made it to Tibet. And that is what formed the basis for the second spreading of the Dharma in Tibet. The oldest, the old one is called the Nyingma or the old one. And the other three are called the Sarma or the new ones. 
And so it, so it was that these different lineages came to be and they maintained their integrity going from one teacher to one disciple and one teacher to one, then that disciple became a teacher and then through these different lineages. And so something called transmission is very important in this kind of practice because the teacher doesn't just give you intellectual information and tell you, you have Buddha nature. Sometimes they'll sit and meditate with you and show you by having you meditate with them and giving you instruction one-on-one. -on -one. And so that is a type of transmission where they're actually sitting with you and you are working with them to understand and know the nature of your mind. So there are also lineages of all these mantras and all these visualizations and all of the different prayer texts that go with those mantras and visualizations. And there are different lineages of those. And this particular center represents one of those many lineages, the Karma Kagyu. And uh, Ka means it's, it's the first letter of the Tibetan alphabet. And so it's also the word for word. It's also the word for word, Ka. But if you pronounce it because it's a tonal language, it's Ka. Ka is the next one after that. Ka. Ka. Ga, ga. Those of you who are taking Tibet, uh, the Tibetan language course, which is this week and next week at KTD, our home monastery, we've been, they've been learning how to spell, you know, so it, ka, ka, ga, ga. Those are the first four letters of the Tibetan alphabet with their tonal variations. So these, these lamas, these teachers, they, they represent these lineages of transmission. But from among, now, who can become a Lama? We're talking a little about Lamas because we've got a Lama visiting us at the end of August. So what's the difference between a Lama and a monk or a nun? Okay, monks and nuns are monastic and they live often in a communal monastery environment. And in the time of the Buddha, they were called the left home people, the left home people. And sometimes they, they said they go forth into homelessness, which is sad in a way, but okay in a way because that was their chosen path. But they were all homeless together. I don't know, it's a little strange. But the idea was that they left the householder life. They left behind the householder life of family and jobs and so forth and so on. They left behind the householder life to live together and mainly practice meditation and the teachings of the Buddha. And they never married because they took a vow of celibacy. And so they would be lifelong renunciates. Now, these lifelong renunciates can go to the... Um, to, the, uh, to either a, a college and become scholars, or they can go into a, a, a practice environment and become practitioners of Buddhism. They can either become scholars of Buddhism or practitioners of Buddhism. You don't, it's not that one is exclusive, but it's the emphasis. If you become a scholar, you go to monastic college and you learn you have to memorize books because that you know I, I have a feeling that 
uh, with the, the fact that they could wipe out Buddhism in one generation and then they had to reestablish it. They began to, it's not that they distrusted books, but they wanted the people to know something too. So memorization was very important. And so in order to get a master's degree or the equivalent of a master's degree, uh, the Acharya degree, you had to memorize more than a dozen books and be quizzed on them and know what the teachings were within them. That's a lot of memorization. And if you wanted to become a doctor of Tibetan Buddhism, which in our tradition is called a Kempo, K-H-E-N, which means someone who is knowledgeable or a scholar. Po is a person in this case. And then there's Ken Mo, which is the women who attain this degree, Kempos and Kemos. If you want to be, you have to memorize more than 30 books and be quizzed on them. And, uh, and I have to tell you, um, I visited Sherabling Monastery in Northern India where many Tibetans live in exile and go to monastic institutions and go to monastic college. And they, they let me, they gave me a room to stay in that was in the monastic college. So every morning at 5.30 in the morning, I hear this, this humming sound and it's like, I'm like, what is this sound? And I look out my window and you know, I was on the second floor and right, right in front of the, the first floor, there's, there's a whole line of monks and they're reading and they're memorizing line after line after line. They're memorizing these texts. And I thought to myself, I don't think I could do it. I couldn't hack that. That's a lot of memorization. But the idea was if they memorized the teachings, they wouldn't need to rely on books in case of crisis. That you could take a Kempo or a Ken Mo and create all of Buddhism in one place. They were, like, they were like a monastery in a box. You just plant them and then everything will come from that. But it wasn't just the scholars that they produced. They also produced practitioners and these practitioners became known as lamas. They became known as lamas because they undertook rigorous retreats, practice retreats where they did many sessions a day four or five or six sessions of meditation a day with a curriculum, a full curriculum. You know, first you study this one, then you study this one, then you study this one, then you study it. It takes about three years to get through this curriculum. And, um, and it's amazing, but you live as a temporary monastic. Even people who are married who go into this three-year retreat, which is what we call it in our tradition. Even married people who go into this, they put monks and nuns' robes on and they have temporary ordination for the three years they are there. They don't go home, because that would test their, their temporary monastic vows, so they don't go home and they just stay there for three years. Now, some people say, well, that's kind of cruel. And I said, well, in some ways, it's not as cruel as medical school or nursing school, or dental school, or getting your master's degree in, in psychotherapy or social work, where you can see your family members, but you cannot interact with them because your studies are so all-consuming 
you know, that you can't think of anything else. And I was going to say, I was just thinking law degree, <laughs> you know, whole thing, right? You know, it's like you get consumed with your subject matter and you can't, you can see your loved ones, but you don't really remember interacting with them. It's just not, you know, it's, anyway, but you get the idea. So taking us out of our homes for three years may seem unkind, but in a way it was good for everyone. So renunciates are monks and nuns, and they can go to three-year retreat and become lamas. Kempos and Kenmos are scholars, and Acharyas are scholars, and they can go to retreat and become a lama also. Not all Kempos are lamas, but we call them lamas because great respect for all of the practice and study that got them to that place. But many will do both. Some of them will do them in different orders. Some will do the practice retreat first, then go to college, and then others will go to college and then do retreat. It doesn't matter. So the person who is coming to visit us is all three. Monastic, he's a monastic, and, uh, and he's bringing with him, I said he's all three, that's wrong. He did study in college. He did study in monastic college, but he didn't get the degree. So this Lama who's coming is a, is a trained scholar, but he didn't, he didn't uh, get his degree. Uh, but he's bringing with him someone who did. His translator will be uh, Kempo Sanjay. That Lama who's coming is named Lama Tobden, T-O-B-D-E-N, Tobden. And I have forgotten which long Tibetan name that's the diminutive of. I'm going to have to look that up. But uh, Lama Tobden is, uh, he has been to monastic college and he has done the, the, the long retreat and he is thoroughly trained in what we call the monastic arts. He learned how to play all the instruments of the Tibetan liturgical orchestra. He learned how to chant all of the complex chants that they do in community chant practice. He learned all of the rituals of the mantra tradition he learned all of that, and he's like an encyclopedia of that, as well as being a meditation master. So uh, we're going to have a real, it's going to be a real treat to, to meet him and to interact with him and receive teachings from him. And he's going to be translated, his translator will be Kempo Sanjay from our home monastery, who received his monastic degree in Asia and is going to be uh, our, serving as our translator. And he will be accompanied by Lama Drime, who is another retreat person who did the three-year retreat and is also monastic. And he's also Lama Karma Drodol's brother. So, uh, yeah, so, it's, uh, so we're going to be able to, uh, to see all of these people and they will all be helping us learn Dharma for that weekend. And what are they going to be doing? They're going to be doing um, a teaching on the Mahamudra lineage supplication that is at the, in, the, in the front of our red books, you know, the red prayer books we use here on a regular basis. It's also the prayer we recite at the beginning of every, every week's Chenrezig practice. That one, uh, what is it? Um, Renunciation is the foot of meditation. Devotion is the head of meditation. Non-distractedness is the body of meditation. The nature of thoughts is dharmakaya, etc., etc. He's going to be teaching on those, uh, those stanzas. It's going to be a good teaching. Plus, he's going to be giving the vow of refuge, probably on the Saturday afternoon. 
of that weekend. He'll be visiting us Friday, the uh, 25th of August. Uh, and then he'll be teaching Friday night. He'll be doing a program on Saturday, the 26th in the morning. And in the afternoon, he'll be doing the refuge ceremony and uh, an empowerment. And an empowerment is a type of ceremony where a person who has done a lot of mantra practice blesses uh, the, uh, the body, speech, and mind of a person by uh, giving them uh, water to drink and touching their head with a, with a sacred object, like a vase that is full, filled with water and, and then pouring a little into their hand to ritually give them purification of their body, speech, and mind, and then showing pictures of the Buddha or Bodhisattva of the practice and giving the mantra. So the body, the speech, and the mind are then first purified and then consecrated as that Buddha or that Bodhisattva. And he'll be giving the empowerment of Vajrasattva, the Buddha Vajrasattva, who the purpose of his mantra is a purification, which we all need. You know, we, all, we all need a you know, clear mind. And so uh, a little bit, uh, that's a little bit about who's visiting and what the program is going to be. The program will go uh, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, and Sunday afternoon. Now, our regular intro to meditation and intro to Buddhism will still be happening that day in this building. So if you, uh, if you come for, uh, the only thing that will be interrupted is the regular program in this room, in the shrine room. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the remainder of the program, the instructional program will go on. So um, I, think that's, I think that's all I'd like to talk about today. And I have, and I have a handout. I forgot to give y'all. Um, could I have helpers on each side? Uh, oh, thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, this is just a vocabulary list. And you can, you can uh, read it at your leisure. And, uh, and I will uh, try to post it on, uh, on our Facebook page, uh, a link to it, so that people can, who are watching at home today can download it. I'll put it on our Facebook page. Um, I think we can also put it in the description of the YouTube. So we've got some time now in case people would like to ask questions about the differences between monks and lamas or just want to talk about any of the, the conversations from today about the yanas and whatnot. Yeah, we have two question microphones. Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Uh, I'd yeah. heard that the Kempo was the, the uh, word for abbot yes, of it a is. monastery. Yes, it is. It's you, also, yeah. You gave it a different definition, I thought. Um, it's, it, it, well, it's like a doctorate. It's the equivalent of a doctorate. Okay. So that was what I was using, but I appreciate you pointing that out because I did forget to make that, to mention that. I thought I'd mentioned that they were abbots, but I think I forgot. It was like the idea of a kempo being, an, uh, being like a monastery in a box. You could just plant one and then a monastery would grow. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a clever idea, but I don't know if they actually do it that way. Hey, good morning. Hi. Can you hear me? Sorry? Okay. Yeah. yeah, we're good. So when it comes to doing an ordination or a retreat like that, um, what would be 
sort of the process of going about that? Do you just talk to a llama and then they can get oh, it set up for right. you? Or? Yeah, that's usually, um, that's a really excellent question because people, you know, I, I'm going to make a little joke here that, you know, because monastics are celibate and don't marry and have families, it's probably not a, like a top-tier career path for the average American person. I mean, you know, uh, it's, life is what it is, you know. But anyhow, um, but so it's not like a top career path. But should you wish to do that, yeah, that would be what a person would do. They would actually go to their teacher and ask to ask to uh, the to sort of enter the path of discernment to find out if it's for them or not. What they've done in other traditions, we have not done. Uh, we have not done this in our tradition in America yet. But what I've seen others do is they'll do a one-month intensive. Sometimes I saw a monastery once advertise a one-month intensive for people who were examining the monastic path, just to to give them an idea of what it would be like to live as a monk or a nun. I think that's a really great idea. You don't give anybody vows, but you encourage them to keep the the basic vows, um, which are variations of the five lay precepts. No killing, no stealing, no lying, no sexual misconduct, and uh, no taking of intoxicants. So in all of the monastic vows, there are more than 200 monastic vows, and they get really granular, you know. Like, you know, you can't sit next to, a, a, too close to or next to a person and that kind of thing. So there are lots of different variations of these five permutations. But um, that would be the one way to do it, would be to talk to a llama and then get a, get a program uh, to prepare yourself for the idea. Because the majority of llamas in the United States um, because it's such a heavy commitment to give monastic vows, it's a very heavy commitment because then you, in a way, by giving those vows, then become responsible for that person and what they do with those vows. There is a connection, a karmic connection there that is very heavy, and so people do want to... There are very few people who give these kinds of vows, and so normally in the U.S. we would have to wait until such an individual would come, although technically to do an ordination you just need six other observant monastics, technically. The Sangha itself then would give it, but the way it's developed in the Tibetan tradition is that they usually give the preceptor role to someone who's uh, got a lot of qualities. And in terms of the three-year retreat, um, usually what happens again is that your Lama will give you a program of study and a program of practice. And that after you get this program of study and practice, which could take years to complete, you would then uh, enter into the three-year retreat. And we've had we've had um, three people from our center uh, do it, and a fourth went partway through. You know, so it it so um, we've got we've you know I'm, I'm going to make a joke and say we we kind of got game there, but you know, but um, uh, but uh, I, anyway. But I don't really know myself uh, what the best thing to do is other than talking to a teacher. And you can connect to them here or you can connect to them at, at KTD Monastery. Or So does that give you the... Yeah, that helps. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Other, question, other questions that people might have. Yeah. Yeah. 
morning, Lama Kathy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mm -hmm. I want you to talk a little bit about uh, reading transmissions, what they are, and mm -hmm. who does them. Thank you. Okay, very good. Yes, that, that's right. There were a couple of things on the, um, on the handout that I did not discuss. And that was um, this uh, Vajrayana. This Vajrayana of which you speak, you know, um, it, it, how are these transmissions given? And uh, there are three types of transmission. The empowerment, which I just described, which was the ritual purification of a, of a student's body, speech, and mind by touching them with the emblems of purity. And then the showing them the, the Buddha of the practice, reciting the mantra of the practice, and meditating with them. And so to uh, consecrate the person's body, speech, and mind as the Buddha of the practice. Uh, but I didn't talk about the other two aspects of Vajrayana practice, which is the, the texts, because a lot of these mantras have prayer texts that go with them and mantras that go with them. And so you can hand down the lineage of that book from one generation to the next. This is why I find Tibetan Buddhism so interesting because they're so granular about how they pass things down. They don't just say, eh, show up to class. Don't show up if you don't want to grade. You know, they don't quite, they don't kind of do it like college, you know? They, they say, you know, if you want to do this, come here, learn this, do this, right? So it's, it's like the, they, they, they expect you to practice, actually. So, the, but to respect the empowerment, a person has to have received it and then learned how to give it and, and so forth. So it goes, you know, down through the ages in the way it started out. The same is with the book. If, if you have a book on a specific style of Mahamudra meditation or a specific style of mantra meditation, there's a manual about how to do it. The person who wrote it gave it, they read it out loud to all of their students, who then wrote, wrote, read it out loud to all of their students, who then read it out loud to all of their students. So the book is alive. The empowerment's alive and the book is alive because it's been given by living people to living people in an unbroken line. I mean, it's kind of amazing if you think about it. This, is, this goes back about a thousand years. It's pretty amazing. And so the reading transmission is the transmission of the practice text or the instruction manuals and so on. It's that. And the, the, the teachers who do this, they have, it's kind of like a magic power. They, they just, they can read incredibly fast and yet enunciate completely. I don't know how they do it. It's like magic. It's like listening to an auctioneer. How do they actually pronounce all of those words? But it's like that kind of cadence. And the Lama who is coming here, Lama Tobden, I attended a reading transmission event that he did at KDD Monastery in 2019. He read for six to eight hours a day, all 60, six, zero, volumes of the works, the collected works of the 17th century master Karmachagme. And I sat there for all of it. Actually, I, I actually walked around a bit because I, my back hurt. I couldn't sit for that many hours a day listening. And I was inattentive because I would be writing or you know, sending emails while I'm listening. I was, I was like the worst student, but anyway. <laughs> but 
but I actually did sit there and, and, and hear it all. And, um, and so, and he was amazing. He was just amazing. He was, it was like he was in a different world. But then the third type of instruction is the practical instructions. The actual, the, the manuals, they don't just read you the manuals, they teach you the manual. So that that way you will have all three parts of a mantra practice or all three parts of a meditation practice. The empowerment, the reading transmission, and the practical instructions. So thank you for asking about that. Yeah. Yes. Oh sure. Okay. Yeah. The questioner is asking for a bit of uh, a bit of historical context. That's a that's a good question, and that will be our last question for today. The person is asking a little bit about a little bit about the historical context for Buddhism in Tibet as well as in other places in Asia. I won't have the years on this, but I will have the general idea. I don't have this part memorized. But generally, there are two styles of Buddhists. Buddhists. There are the various, and they, they, they formed geographically. There are the various southern schools and the various northern schools, uh, and meaning southern Asia and northern Asia. So there's the uh, southern schools, which are sometimes today referred to as the Theravadan schools, which I think it's spelled T-H-E-R, E or A, V, A, D, A, N, Theravadan or Theravadan, and it means the path of the elders. They're mainly monastic, and they mainly follow the very earliest scriptures of Buddhism called the three baskets of the Vinaya or Vinaya, which is the monastic discipline, the sutras, and um, the Pali sutras, and then also the Abhidharma teachings. So that's, the, and they're mainly monastic. Lay people exist to help support the monastics. And then in the northern schools, uh, the northern schools, and those mainly went to the southern school, mainly spread in southern Asia, Sri Lanka, India, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Burma or Myanmar, and uh, those southern Asian locations. The various northern schools would include uh, Japan, China, Korea, Vietnam, um, and of course Tibet, Mongolia, parts of Russia. So the northern schools um, follow, are both, uh, both monastic and lay persons practitioners. And they will practice not just the three baskets, but a set of scriptures that are called the Mahayana scriptures. And so the Mahayana scriptures, which um, appeared in uh, the 3rd century AD, were taught by the Indian master Nagarjuna. Some question their authenticity, but, um, uh, but the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, you know, it, um, he said, any, uh, any sutra or whatever, any teacher who attains Buddhahood will give the teachings of the Buddha. So, but uh, they're, they're attributed to, all of the Mahayana sutras are attributed to the Buddha and to his um, immediate disciples. So, um, so the, the northern schools follow. They're, they're both householder and uh, monastics. 
And the Mahayana Sutras emphasize the, uh, the two types of uh, meditation called bodhicitta. Bodhi means awakening and citta means mind. So there's relative bodhicitta, which is love and compassion, and ultimate bodhicitta, which are the teachings on wisdom and the nature of mind and emptiness and phenomena and all of that. So, okay, yeah. Well, we've, we've taken a bit of a tour today. Uh, I thank you, but I, I figured it was a good idea just to get these, uh, uh, get these things talked about. So that when, uh, when Lama Tobden and Kempo Sanjay and Lama Drime get here at the end of August, we have some context for, uh, for, their, uh, for what they're bringing to us. Uh, some people find it easy to listen to interpreters. Um, as some people don't find it easy to listen to interpreters. I gotta tell you, I love interpreters and I'll tell you why, it gives me time to make my notes. While the teacher is speaking in Tibetan, I can catch up with the notes from the previous, you know, the previous bit that was translated. So I'm, you know, kind of works out for me. So um, we'll, uh, we'll stop here. I do need to let you know um, that if anybody is interested, there is a refuge ceremony happening at one o'clock today or thereabouts. It should be right up there. Uh, and then that will be, we'll, that will go from one o'clock to two o'clock today. You can observe if you wish or uh, take the refuge vow if you wish. Uh, there's, uh, there, is some, there is some reading to do about that. So you might just wanna observe today, but I, let, I tell people I, these days, I never try to talk anybody into or out of becoming a Buddhist. You know, I don't try to talk anybody into it and I don't try to talk anybody out of it. Why? Because when I wanted to go before my teacher and say, Buddha is my teacher, Dharma is my path, Sangha is my community, which is what the vow of refuge is. Buddha is my teacher, Dharma is my path, community is my community. The person who was the organizer for the event discouraged me. She said, oh, refuge, very big step. You really need to think about it. And I'm like, really? I let her talk me out of it. And after that, I swore, I, was, I got mad at myself because the teacher left town after that. And then I was like, what? Anyhow, um, so, um, so I have made a promise to not talk anybody into it and not talk anybody out of it. I say, look, if, if you're ready to, to, to say, Buddha's my teacher, Dharma's my path, Sangha's my community, that's good by me. You know, but otherwise, um, it's, a, it's each individual person's dis, distinction and each individual person's decision. So we'll close today by dedicating the goodness of, of our session and dedicating it to all sentient beings that suffer and making the aspiration that they're freed from suffering and become Buddhas. We'll recite this uh, just one time through in English. By this merit, may all attain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. The courageous Manjushri, who knows everything as it is, Samantabhadra, who also knows in the same way, and all the bodhisattvas that I may follow in their path. I completely dedicate all this virtue. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.